Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We've got a lot of stuff to get through today. We're talking education in the second half of the show and how the politics around everything from charter schools to teacher strikes have changed over the last few years and how that may impact the 2020 Democratic primary. We also look at Brown versus Board 65 years later and some of the unintended consequences for African-American educators. We're going to stick around for all that. But first, let's do the numbers. No, not those numbers. We're talking candidates. 22, Governor Steve Bullock of Montana is running. Wait, nope, it's 23. New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio is in. Who knows? Maybe we'll hit two dozen by the time Game of Thrones wraps up on Sunday night. We've talked with six candidates already on the show, but this candidate was one of the first to jump into the race. I am very glad I was one of the first people (laughs) to declare... I might not have felt that grateful in uh, February, March of 2018 because no one cared (laughs) about the 2020 race in 2018. But I'm very grateful that I've had more time to introduce myself to the American people and certainly very glad that I've now made the threshold to, to be included in the Democratic primary debates in June and July. That's Andrew Yang, founder of Venture for America, a fellowship program for recent college graduates. He announced his long shot campaign back in November of 2017. Well, I'm very open about the fact that I never intended to run for any political office, honestly, and that uh, before 2016, I was the CEO and founder of a nonprofit organization called Venture for America that helped create several thousand jobs in the Midwest and the South. I'd gotten this sinking feeling that my work was like pouring water into a bathtub that had a giant hole ripped in the bottom. If you go to Detroit, that city used to have a population of 1.8 million. It's a manufacturing hub. Now it's down to 680,000 or so. So you go there with a small army of young entrepreneurs looking to rebuild, and you realize that uh, the problems are much bigger and deeper and nastier. And so after Donald Trump became president, I saw our country become very confused, uh, where we were blaming immigrants somehow for things that immigrants have very little to do with. Uh, and to me, the central story was that we'd automated away 4 million manufacturing jobs in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, all the swing states that Donald Trump needed to win. And my work in technology uh, and my friends know that we're about to do the same thing to millions of retail workers, call center workers, fast food workers, truck drivers, and on and on. So uh, I realized I needed to help America understand what's happening to us and then advance meaningful solutions in the form of a freedom dividend. I'm also on the record saying if someone else were to reach the White House and adopt universal basic income and other policy goals, I'd be the first there clapping for them. I just want to solve the problems. So universal basic income, which you call the freedom dividend, that's uh, $12,000 a person. Can you explain how that would work and how much that would actually cost, how that would get paid for? Well, the great thing is this idea, though it seems very dramatic to us now in 2019, it has been with the country since our founding. Thomas Paine was for it in the beginning, called it the citizen's dividend. Martin Luther King championed it in 1967 in his book, Cast Our Community, and it's what he was fighting for when he was killed in 1968. It passed the U.S. House of Representatives twice in 1971. Milton Friedman and a thousand economists endorsed it. Was it for uh, these same reasons, the idea that eventually technology is going to put us out of work? Or was there another underpinning reason for a universal basic income? Obviously, Thomas Paine was not thinking about robots 
Maybe he was. That would be he was impressive. Very, he was very, very prescient. Um, in the 60s, Martin Luther King uh, and Milton Friedman and the rest actually were concerned with technology. Uh, that was actually a time of great technological innovation, and it was a concern. Um, we've had you know several shifts in our economy since the 60s and 70s, but now I see in the numbers that we're pushing many millions of Americans to the sidelines. It led to Donald Trump. Uh, and today, if you were to want to implement a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month, which we should 100% do, um, it would be pretty straightforward because we have this massive infrastructure already in place. Uh, almost half Americans are already receiving various transfers from the government. And so after I'm president in 2021, there will be bipartisan support for a dividend uh, and we can make it happen very, very quickly. So explain how this would work. If you are already getting entitlement or safety net government assistance, you're getting food assistance, Social Security, Medicare, is this coming on top of those? So this is uh, alongside it, but if you opt in, it's universal and it's optional. Obviously, you can't force money on people. <laughs> Most people <laughs> Like would to take, take it, money. yeah, no. Yeah. And the great thing too is it reintegrate a lot of people in the economy because you know you need to get a means of payment and bank account generally and things like that. But it's opt in. But if you opt in, then you're choosing to forego benefits from certain cash and cash like programs. So if you're currently receiving food stamps, for example, um, you would look at it and say, "Hey, is what I'm getting right now better or worse than a thousand dollars in cash?" And then if it's worse, then you take the thousand dollars in cash, and then your current food stamps uh, no longer apply. But it sure still seems difficult to live on $12,000 a year without getting any other assistance. Oh, yeah. And, and many families would be very well served by not opting into the dividend if you're getting higher levels of benefits. But keep in mind, it's $1,000 per individual. So if you have two adults in a household, it's 24000 Maybe you have an 18-year-old child, and it's $36,000. So, uh, I mean, if everyone gets it, it actually adds up very quickly. And even people who are well off. So no matter how much or how little you're making – you qualify for this. Universal means universal. Yeah, that's right. And, and this is taken uh, from the successful application of a dividend in Alaska, which has had it for almost 40 years. Everyone gets between one and $2,000 a year, no questions asked. And it doesn't matter if you're the richest Alaskan or the poorest Alaskan, you get the dividend. And that helps make it universally popular. It's not a rich-to-poor transfer, so there's no you're getting it, I'm not. It destigmatizes it and makes it a genuine right. And it also avoids having to have um, reporting or monitoring requirements where people say, my circumstances changed, or you have some motivation to underreport your income. We've been hearing a lot about worries of automation pushing people out of work. As you point out, since the 60s, I'm sure it's been even before then, right, that ultimately – as a society, we're going to be so technically efficient that we're not going to need workers. At the same time, the pushback to that is, yes, but every technology brings more jobs. People were thinking this at the Industrial Revolution era, right? We were going to put so many people out of work. But that it may take a little time, but that automation and AI are going to create as many jobs as they are taking away, but just in different areas. Yeah, so I, I wrote a book on this subject. I, I've gone into the facts and figures and the history, but I'll, I'll just suggest a few things. Um, of course, there'll be new jobs that get created by all these new technologies. The problem is that these new jobs will be for different people in different places with different skills than the jobs that are lost. There are three and a half million truck drivers in this country. The average truck driver is a, a 49-year-old man with a high school education making about $46,000 a year. My friends in California are working on trucks that can drive themselves. 
Now, after you get self-driving trucks on the road in five to 10 years, will you need new logistics managers and hardware specialists uh, and, you know, sensor uh, uh, mechanics? Yes. Will they be the same people as the three and a half million that are driving the trucks right now or the seven million that work in truck stops, motels and diners that no longer have customers because the truckers don't stop there anymore? Of course not. They'll be very, very different people. Uh, And I studied economics in college. According to economic theory, if you were to automate away 4 million manufacturing jobs in the Midwest and the South, those workers would get retrained, reskilled, find new jobs, and all would be well. But in real life, when you dig into what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest, almost half of them left the workforce and never worked again. And of that group, about half filed for disability. And then we saw surges in drug overdoses and suicides in those communities to a point where now our life expectancy overall has declined for three years. And the success rate of federally funded retraining programs, according to independent studies, were between 0 and 15%. If you use the first industrial revolution as a template, there were mass riots that killed dozens of Americans and caused billions of dollars worth of damage. And we implemented universal high school in 1911 as a response. So even if you use that as your template, you'd expect this to be very, very rough, particularly when you consider that MIT, McKinsey, and Bain all project that this fourth industrial revolution will displace workers at two to three times the rate and magnitude of that industrial revolution. We're in the greatest economic transformation in the history of the world. It has brought us Donald Trump, and we need to get our heads up and start acting. So if you get $12,000, but you still don't have a full-time job, how are you going to still make it in this economy? So the great thing is that the $12,000 a year is – across everyone. So if you are in a community of 100,000 adults, that's uh, an additional $120 million flowing through your community. And that money is going to get spent on car repairs and tutoring services and local nonprofits and religious organizations. Uh, Like it ends up supercharging all these neighborhood economies. So that's one of the the problems with thinking about it's like, oh, if I get $1,000. Sure, but if everyone gets $1,000, that's actually going to be a massive boon. It's going to grow the consumer economy by 10 to 12 percent. It's going to create 2 million new jobs in our communities because that's where the money is going to go. But it's going to then sort of supercharge the gig economy, an idea that people are going to be doing two or three or four things on top of getting a monthly check. Well, and so 94 percent of the new jobs that have been created in this economy since 2005 have been gig temporary or contractor jobs. Um, so we need to move towards universal health care, Medicare for all, and that's one of the flagship pillars of my platform. We need to start essentially waking up to the fact that it's not the 70s anymore. People aren't going to have lifetime jobs with the same company for years. Um, everyone's doing a gig job. We need to get health care uh, to people independent of their employment. And then we have to start acknowledging the sort of work that my wife does. My wife's at home with our two boys, one of whom is autistic, and that gets valued at zero. We know women do the vast majority of the unrecognized and uncompensated work in society. So people who are like, let's raise the minimum wage, I get it. I'm for raising the minimum wage too, but that does not affect millions of people who are doing caregiving work and nurturing work and parenting work around the country. You've talked about the freedom dividend Medicare for all, universal health care. I've looked at your website. There are a lot of things. That's a, I'm for a lot of a, things. You're for Amy, a lot of things. A lot of things. Everything from the NCAA paying athletes to battling opioid addiction to preventing airlines from booting people off their flights. But this all costs a lot of money. 
I mean, how on earth can we have this many things that the government's doing? Well, some of those things don't actually cost money. No. <laughs> Getting the airline thing, no. And NCAA, no. But I'm talking about Medicare for all. I'm talking about, the, obviously, the number one thing being the basic income. But how on earth can we possibly raise enough money? Can the government have enough money to do this? This is the greatest farce that's being played on the American people. Like our economy is up to $20 trillion, up $5 trillion in the last 12 years. And we're somehow running around being like, where are we going to get the money? I mean, all you have to do is look uh, at Amazon. Amazon's a trillion-dollar company. How much did they pay in taxes last year? Zero. Meanwhile, Amazon is leading to the closure of 30% of American malls and Main Street stores. And the most common job in the U.S. is still being a retail clerk. So think about that equation. Your stores and malls close, retail workers lose their jobs, and the American public gets zero. So the way we change all this is we join every other advanced economy and have a value-added tax, which would then give the American public a sliver of every Amazon sale, every Google search, every Facebook ad. And because our economy is so vast at $20 trillion, even a mild value-added tax gets you over $800 billion in new revenue. Now, after we pass this dividend, the money does not disappear. It grows our local economies, and it creates hundreds of billions in new revenue. This is the trickle-up economy from people and families and communities up. All we have to do is believe in ourselves and make it happen. If he were elected, Yang says he would implement a universal basic income, meaning everyone would get $1,000 a month, and he would pay for it with a value-added tax on tech companies like Amazon. But many see a value-added tax as regressive, arguing it's consumers who will bear the brunt of the new tax system as businesses pass those taxes on to their customers. I asked him how this would be fair to most consumers. Well, it would work out for the bottom 94% of the population. And unless you're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, you wind up ahead. Uh, But this is, again, something that every other advanced economy has already done in the world. So you have to ask yourself, like, why has everyone done it except for the U.S.? And the answer is that our government has been overrun by corporate interests and Amazon likes paying zero taxes. That's the only reason we haven't done it. I want to talk about the the sliver of the internet. There are some folks in there that have embraced you, and they come from everything from white nationalists to others who have values that I that, know that, that you not, have. Yeah, that and I, I know hold. you have denounced them and said, please don't support me. I don't, I don't want your help. But I'm wondering if there's another way in which you can address what you think is going on here. Why is this attraction happening for you? And how can you talk to folks out there and assure them that, look, just because somebody like Richard Spencer says that he likes me, I want to tell you why I don't like what he's doing. How can you do that? I think most Americans are very smart. They can see who I am. They can see what my campaign's about. And they know that I can't control every hateful individual who decides to write a blog post that's positive about me. I'm the son of immigrants. I believe that Immigrants make our country stronger and more dynamic. Most Americans have no confusion as to who I am. And that just because someone reprehensible supports me, you know, is not to them something that they they need to get that concerned about. What is it about you, though? Why why do you think they're attaching themselves to you and doing the memes and everything as opposed to any other candidate in this race? Well, I think I'm talking about issues that actually affect Americans day to day and they get it. One thing that someone said to me in Iowa, someone said to me, you're what I hoped for when I voted for Donald Trump. There are many, many people who supported Donald Trump who now feel deeply disillusioned and disappointed. 
And so where are they going to go? If you're not going to support Donald Trump a second time, you're kind of casting about. And so some of them, I believe, have landed on my candidacy because they believe I'm trying to address the same problems in a different way. I see the dislocation in these communities. I worked in the Midwest and the South for seven years. Donald Trump sold turn the clock back, bring back your jobs, build a wall, which was obviously garbage and nonsense. And a lot of people are recognizing that. They were like, hey, that actually did not help or did not work, did not happen. And then Andrew Yang showing up saying, I get it. The economy has transformed underneath your feet. It has devastated your way of life. We should own that and we should try and see to it that everyone has at least some tiny slice of the innovation and progress going on. You feel like you have a stake in the future. And some people find that very compelling. We're doing a show this week on education. Again, go to your website. You have a very detailed plan about tackling student loan debt. Can you sum that up for us? It's reprehensible what we've done to our young people. Why has college gotten two and a half times more expensive and has not gotten two and a half times better? <laughs> you know, we're up to $1.5 trillion in uh, student loan debt, up from less than $100 billion in 1999. Think about that, up 15-fold in 20 years. Uh, so we need to just make a choice and say, do we want our young people living in their parents' basements, deferring any of their hopes, uh, and paying off loans for years? Or do we want them going out there, buying homes, starting businesses, starting families? So if we choose the latter, we should forgive a very, very significant chunk of these student loans. And that's what I would do as president. I would also bring the interest rate to zero so that that government's not profiting. But we have to stop treating college like it's the end-all, be-all for all young Americans. The underemployment rate for recent college graduates is 44%. Only 6% of American high school students are in technical or vocational or apprenticeship tracks. In Germany, that's 59%. And there are tens of millions of those trade jobs that are going unfilled right now because Americans don't have the skills for them. And it's because high school kids get told, go to college or bust, go to college or you're a loser, and trade schools are for second-rate students and individuals. A lot of those jobs are very, very lucrative. You can make six figures as an electrician or plumber in many, many places, and those jobs are much harder to automate. It is much easier for software to get rid of an accounting or bookkeeping or insurance agent or journalist job, unfortunately, for journalists. I have a plan for trying to fix that, too. Okay. But it's much harder to automate away a plumbing job or an electrician job. So we need to try and focus our young people on the opportunities that will be here for them for years to come. Given what we know about automation and what the future is going to look like, Are you surprised that more candidates haven't embraced a basic income in some form or another? Well, let's change it. Uh, You know, the plan is to make it so that every candidate has to embrace a universal basic income as a necessary step towards preparing our country for the 21st century economy. And they're not bold enough to do it yet. But as it becomes more and more popular, they will feel like, okay, this is going to be good for my campaign. Let's embrace it. It's inevitable. We have to do it. And the sooner we do it, the stronger our families and communities will be. And I'm enjoying making that case because I can guarantee you before this campaign's over, I'm going to have a lot of company in the universal basic income camp. Andrew Yang, thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. Thank you, Amy. It's been a lot of fun. And if you want to hear more of my candidate talk interviews, trust me, this is the easiest way to do it. You follow me on Twitter at Amy E. Walter. And I'll tweet out the link to the page with all of those in one place. You can even take them to the beach with you. Meanwhile, the rest of our show today is all about education. And we asked you, our listeners, what you wanted to hear from the presidential candidates when it comes to education reform. Hi, my name is Vicki Brady, and I'm calling from Cloquet, Minnesota. My question for the 2020 candidates is, how can we bring some of the best practices from 
charter schools and private schools into the public school system instead of sending money the other way. I think it would be really, really nice to instill in kids the love of learning instead of the tedium of testing. I would like to see the federal government set a minimum wage for teachers and I'd also like to see loan forgiveness for teachers, especially if they work in underserved areas like Hawaii, which is badly in need of teachers. This is Carol Fay, and I'm calling from Oahu, Hawaii. Hi, I'm Peter from St. Paul, Minnesota. And when it comes to education policy, I would like to see the 2020 candidates address the problems with public service loan forgiveness. So how many Democrats are running for president again? I thought it was 537. <laughs> it feels like that. That's Randy Weingarten. She's the president of the second largest teachers union in the country, the American Federation of Teachers. And she says that the number of candidates running has made their presidential endorsement process a little more complicated. Also, the AFT was criticized for its early endorsement of Hillary Clinton back in the summer of 2015. Many argued that it looked as if Weingarten was trying to blunt the momentum Bernie Sanders was starting to get in that race. This year, Weingarten says the process and the timing are going to be a lot different. We will clearly endorse before the 2020 right, election. but in the primary. Um, so I assume that we will, but if you ask me when, I don't have a sense. You know, you either chase the race or shape the race, right. but when you have, whether it's 23 or 537, candidates, you have to give them time to really make their case. My hunch is that we will not be in a position to do anything until the first four primaries. Our standard is, you know, someone who shares our values and can win, but at the same time, our other goal in this process is the most member involvement ever. Let's talk about what some of the candidates are saying on the campaign trail. I've been struck by the topic of education being almost uniquely focused on student loan debt and on basically post-secondary education. I'm wondering if you're noticing that too, if there's enough attention going to K through 12, and if so, who's doing it mm -hmm. the best? We already have had five candidates do these town halls with our members Harris has a fantastic teacher pay proposal. What I am proposing as a policy prescription is what will be the first federal investment in closing the teacher pay gap. Klobuchar has a fantastic infrastructure proposal. The most important thing is I made sure up front and center that we included funding for school infrastructure. Elizabeth Warren who has a terrific student debt proposal, also talked about child care and other public school proposals at the town hall we had. We can provide universal child care and universal pre-K for every one of our zero to five-year-olds in this country. Think about that. So I'm, I'm seeing it, Amy, but what I'm, we're not seeing is it's not being covered. Ah, okay, so all the coverage is free college, student loan debt, not enough media coverage on some of these other right. programs that candidates are. I think, you know, the normal rule is that, oh, nobody votes on education. 
I think that has changed. I think if you look at 18 and the governors who won in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in New Mexico, all about public education and about infrastructure. But we do think of that as a local issue, right? That's what governors are supposed to talk about. Presidents, they don't get as involved in local education issues. That's still something that the states are supposed to do. So I think that changed because of No Child Left Behind and because of Race to the Top. The real issue will be, will the candidates talk about education a lot because you're seeing a paradigm shift back to public education, which is fabulous, and will it get covered because it is actually norm-changing for people to be voting about education. People vote about their children, but I think in 2020, people will vote about education. After the break, Randy Weingarten and I talk about the teacher's strike. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, the fewer on college campuses over the war in Gaza. Students have tried to have dialogue over and negotiate differences in how they see the world, even as they respond to tragedies and crimes overseas. Students and faculty from Harvard University on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Amber Hall, senior producer for Politics with Amy Walter. On Friday, May 31st, we're celebrating our one-year anniversary with a special live broadcast from WNYC's The Green Space in New York City. If you're not in New York, don't worry, we'll be live streaming the show. And the conversation, it'll be all about the Electoral College. Should we keep it? Should we scrap it? Five times in history, the candidate elected president of the United States was not the winner of the national popular vote. Two of those five elections happened within recent memory. And now the calls to nix the whole thing are getting louder. Join us for a spirited debate and get a peek into what it takes to make the show. The event is free, but you need to reserve your tickets in advance. So visit thegreenspace.org slash events to secure your seat. That's green with an E. See you there. Of course, the big news in the education world is the teacher strikes that have been going on around the country since 2018. Many presidential candidates have spoken out in support of them. Elizabeth Warren tweeted, I'm with our teachers all the way after the L.A. teacher strike in January. Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Kirsten Gillibrand and Bernie Sanders all said similar things. I asked Randy Weingarten if this is unique. Do you think in 2008, for example, that Democrats would have tweeted support for a teacher strike in Los Angeles. No. So what changed? Think about in 2008, who the so-called icon was of education. It was the Time cover, Michelle Rhee on the cover, with a broom in an empty classroom, sweeping something out. And let's tell everyone, this is a D.C. District District of of Columbia's school uh, superintendent. Then superintendent. Who was she sweeping out? basically African-American older female teachers in Washington, D.C. And this was a sense of they were going to shake up the system because education had failed. So these teachers needed to be shaken up and there needed to be an injection of competition and of markets 
and using testing as a way of actually reordering what we should be doing and testing on English and on mathematics. And what has happened in these 10 years, the teacher strikes have been, the root cause of all of them, have been the lack or the disinvestment that has happened. You got 50 kids in a class in Oklahoma and 40 chairs and 30 deaths. You have in West Virginia, no internet and teachers that are actually making less today than they did five years ago. You had in Arizona teachers who were selling their blood plasma to make ends meet. And so when teachers then said, enough, in West Virginia and L.A., we need the guidance counselors in schools. We need nurses. We actually need to meet kids' well-being. We need to actually meet kids' needs, not the testing and not the paperwork. And all of a sudden, you're seeing the public supporting teachers. That's, That's what's the, the big turn. difference. Yes, that it was now supporting the teachers as opposed to supporting sort of structural correct changes. Or the superintendent who said, no, 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 we have to shake the teachers up. And so all of a sudden the teachers are like, no, 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 no. Really? You don't think we want what kids need? Were you surprised <laughs> to see the public support for these teachers as they were striking or walking out? Um, no. I wasn't surprised for the following reason. I spend a lot of time in the field. I spend a lot of time listening to parents and listening to teachers and listening to kids. What I was happy about is that in all the places where we have been involved, we have really worked with our locals, and we have about 3,500 of them around the country. You can't just say teachers want what kids need. You have to work with community. Before you can go out on strike, before you can have a walkout, before you do any of these things, how are we actually making sure that community knows what we are really talking about? And so what you've the shift that you've seen is that there is a real working with community before any of these actions happened. Randy Weingarten, thank you for coming in and talking with me. It's always my pleasure. Thank you, Amy. Randy Weingarten is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. We also reached out to some teachers who participated in a walkout in Oregon this spring. And here's what they told us. My name is Christine Knapper. I teach ESL in Beaverton, Oregon. Our state's walkout was unique because we weren't protesting about teacher pay. It was all about student needs. Every year we have to do more and more with less and less, and we are failing our students, especially our most marginalized ones. I'm a speech therapist in Clackamas County, Oregon. I work with birth to five population, and I've been doing this for over 25 years, and we have been underfunded the entire time I've been working in Oregon. And I would like to ask our presidential candidates, how are you gonna serve the most vulnerable members of our society? Children with delays and disabilities who are birth to five. has been dominating the headlines this weekend. The latest on the Arizona teacher walkout. It has now been four days. Listen to the people who know the best, who take care of these kids every day, who love these kids, who work hard, who are professionals, and listen to them. 
The current wave of teacher strikes started in 2018. They spread from West Virginia to Oklahoma and Arizona. That these strikes were happening in red states made some sense. Unions are weak there, and the legislatures had made deep cuts in public school funding both during and after the recession. But since then, they've spread to blue cities like Los Angeles, Oakland, California, and Denver, places where unions have traditionally been strong. So what exactly is going on here? I spoke with Jeffrey Hennig, professor of political science and education at Teachers College, Columbia University, and Sarah Reckow. She's an associate professor of political science at Michigan State University. This is something that they've been researching, too. What's interesting is that while there are some issues, so for instance, um, salaries have been relatively flat for teachers, and that's a, a phenomena that's affected the red state teachers as well as teachers in cities like uh, Oakland and Los Angeles, we see other issues emerging uh, more prominently as well in these cities, um, especially issues like the expansion of charter schools. And what we especially um, notice and focus on from our own work is uh, about the political clout of teachers' unions. So traditionally, we think of these cities as places where unions are arguably the most dominant player uh, in local education politics. That's historically how many people have thought about school board politics. And what's been happening in these cities is if you look at campaign contributions to school board elections, which we've done um, going back to 2008, you can see that that um, is increasingly not the case in certain cities, including Los Angeles and Denver, which are part of our study, that teachers unions are competing with uh, rising a new group of donors. Um, many of these donors come from out of state. Um, some of them are organizations um, that are involved with education reform, like Stand for Children and Democrats for Education Reform. And they tend to be supportive of things like expanding charter schools. Jeffrey, that's what I wanted to dig into for a second. These outside donors and interests, they're not simply conservative groups. There are a lot of liberal interest groups or people who define themselves as activists on the left who are donating to these school board elections. Yeah, and in fact, in the cities, we looked at the um, individual donors who pumped quite a bit of money into these cities were predominantly Democrats, which we could tell by looking at uh, how they gave in national elections, what candidates they supported. So the Democratic Party's been uh, split for quite a while on some of these issues of education reform with one wing of the party represented in part by Democrats for Education Reform that supported things like test-based accountability, like charter schools, parting company with what was typically more the mainstream of the party, which was aligned with the teachers' unions. And it seems like maybe the pendulum has swung back. Are you all seeing that? Because, you know, there was a time not that long ago where Democrats, including some liberal Democrats like Cory Booker when he was mayor of Newark, were extolling the virtues of charter schools under the Obama administration. There was something called race to the top that the teachers unions were not happy about. Now it seems like Democrats are running, if not running away from those issues, they're certainly not embracing them. Well, I think, that, you know, the teachers unions spent uh, the first two decades of the 2000s somewhat, um, you know, our first decade and a half somewhat on their heels. Um, they had been pushed a little bit aside. Not They're not powerless, but they had lost some of their access, uh, particularly to political decision making at the national and state level. 
And uh, despite the fact that they were kind of counted out by some folks, and especially in the context of the recent Janus court decision that hurts unions' abilities to raise funds from their members, they are, in the last year or so, showing real new signs of, of life and vitality. And these strikes are part of that, but not the only part of that. As far as the teacher strikes, it's interesting if you compare to the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, um, that didn't seem to get quite as well received in terms of public opinion and media coverage at the time. And that looks rather different compared to what we're seeing now. You're exactly right. There's been a time in which it was seen as these teachers, they want to keep these perks like tenure and that these labor unions are really stifling innovation. And here we are uh, in 2018, 2019. The sentiment now is with the teachers. I I think some of the uh, glimmer has come off elements of the reform movement, and that's helped the teachers to some extent. The reformers, broadly speaking, have kind of been controlling the levers through the Bush administration, through the Obama-Duncan administration. And yet, despite their you know, um, insistence that uh, failure to improve education in the past was due to obstinate resistance by teachers and teachers' unions, they've failed to really budge the meter on on education's uh, achievement and education gaps. What's more, the um, test-based accountability that was a big part of the reform movement pushed down from Washington and the states did not play well in suburban communities and uh, prompted a pretty um, potent opt-out movement among parents. And that, I think, opened up room for the teachers' union to reconnect with parents and community-based groups that they had lost some touch with um, earlier. Where do you think we are in terms of teachers and their political muscle at this moment in time? Well, the teachers are, and the unions, and sometimes it's important to distinguish between the two of them, but they're driven a little bit back more together recently, are, are in a stronger position than we've seen them in a while. But in terms of the enthusiasm they bring and their Um, ability to um, uh, generate positive uh, coverage of their activities, they're well-placed. And in the Democratic primary in particular, the teachers' unions, the AFT and the NEA are really central actors again as, you know, they've always been important to the Democratic Party, but the candidates now seem to be running towards them rather than uh, running away from them. Sarah Reckow, Jeffrey Hennig, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me. Happy to do it. Thanks very much. Jeffrey Hennig is professor of political science and education at Teachers College, Columbia University. And Sarah Reckow is an associate professor of political science at Michigan State University. They, along with Rebecca Jacobson, are co-authors of the book, Outside Money in School Board Elections, The Nationalization of Education Politics. This week, we're marking 65 years since the landmark Supreme Court's unanimous decision in Brown versus Board of Education, which ruled racial segregation in publicly supported schools to be unconstitutional, declaring that it denied equal opportunity. As a student, I always went to integrated schools because I'm from Columbus, Ohio. That's Dr. Linda Tillman, Professor Emerita, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. 
we did not, as a city or a state, experience the kind of resistance to the Brown decision or resistance to integration because in Columbus, most things were integrated. And while Dr. Tillman draws a contrast between her school experience and the experiences of Black children in the South, she still knows she was treated differently. I would have been one of the kids that didn't ever see the guidance counselor. So the guidance counselor never called me into the office to say, now what are you going to do? What are your plans? None of the teachers expected me to do anything other than go work in a department store or go work for the government because a big government facility was here, still is here. I sat down with Dr. Tillman to talk about the impact of the Brown decision on black educators. Prior to Brown, there were 82,000 black teachers throughout the United States that taught about 2 million black kids who were mostly in the South who attended segregated schools. When the Brown decision was rendered, black educators, along with black children, suffered the brunt of it. As black people, the black community thought this is a wonderful thing, and what we thought would happen was that the Brown decision would lead to equal educational opportunities for blacks, that black educators would more than ever play an important role in the social, emotional, and academic success of black children, and that black educators would continue to be leaders in setting an agenda for black children. However, uh, the South, where the decision really was going to impact, was so entrenched in a social and educational segregationist ideology, the opposite happened. There was massive resistance. So all across the South, you saw teachers being removed from their jobs, eliminated from their jobs for all kinds of reasons, even if they had master's degrees, or they had a PhD degree, or they had been teaching for numerous years. There were still ways. Some of them were as blunt as, you're fired. And some of them were a little more subtle, not much more subtle. Talk to us a little a little bit about what that meant for communities of color. I think the most extreme example of how black teachers were displaced that filtered down into students and communities was Prince Edward County, Virginia. So in 1959, the the local school district refused to give any funding for schools to stop integration. So for five years, the black children in Prince Edward County, Virginia, had no school to go to. So that meant the teachers had no jobs. That meant the parents had no place to send their children. That meant many of the children were separated from their parents and communities because the parents may have sent them to the north to live with their aunt, to live with their grandmother, to live with some relative where they could go to school. So in that sense, it was devastating to the black community. Mm -hmm. So I would say the black church and the black school was the cultural center of the community. So 
black students were involved in athletics. They were involved in honor societies. They were involved in uh, civic organizations. They went on to be doctors, lawyers, professors, so forth, and so on. But when the schools were closed, that then destroyed their opportunities to become educated and to become participating citizens in U.S. society. And what do we know about, especially for children of color, what it means to have a teacher or an educator that is a person of color? Researchers have been reiterating that black uh, educators, principals, teachers, guidance counselors, uh, psychologists, social workers can serve, can and do serve as role models to black students. Uh, recently, um, I think it was the Department of Labor Economics came out with a study that said if a black student has um, a black teacher in elementary school, they are more likely to graduate from high school be interested in going to college. Uh, they're more Black teachers are more likely to identify black students for gifted and talented advanced placement programs. So students do want same race affiliation. They do want what Jackie Irvine calls a warm demander, someone who is going to encourage them, who is going to prepare them, who is going to tell them they can be successful even while they are operating in a white world. As we think about African-American teachers now, 65 years post the Brown decision, where are we in terms of the number of teachers today who are African-American? Currently, the teaching force in, uh, for the latest numbers we have are 2015-16, 80% white, 7% black, 6% Latino. How do you evaluate Brown versus Board today? Well, I mean, I think if you go back and look at it, the ideals of Brown have never been accomplished some people will say it was just totally devastating for the black community. Uh, other people have said it was more of a civil rights issue than an educational issue. But I think for certain, the ideals of Brown, that blacks would have equal access to education, experienced teachers, resources, without threat, without threat, that has never happened. We are in a period of massive resegregation. 65% of all African-American students in the country live in what we call intensely segregated schools. Those are schools with less than 10% of white students. So we've resegregated, and for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that 25 states in the United States are allowed to secede from their districts. So you have these wealthy white districts seceding to keep their districts wealthy and white. Dr. Tillman, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. Oh, thank you for having me.
Well, we heard from three experts on why the public has rallied behind striking teachers and Democrats are no longer embracing reform movements like charter schools. But I was curious how voters feel about all of this. And thankfully, the folks at USA Today posed those questions to Americans last September. Their poll found solid support from Democrats and Republicans for the right of teachers to strike. And 60 percent said they approve of teachers unions. This fits with AFT President Randy Weingarten's observation that the education system writ large, not just the more self-centered focus on one's own school-aged child, is an issue that will resonate in 2020. Even so, views of teachers' unions themselves are more complicated. Fewer than half thought unions improved the quality of education, and a majority of Democrats and Republicans said that teacher unions make it harder to fire bad teachers. And 60%, including almost half of Democrats, think private and charter schools provide better education than public schools. So what do all those numbers tell me? Well, first, Americans are more united than not on what they do want to see from their public schools and school teachers. The sweet spot for a candidate running for office in 2020 is to support policies and positions that respect current teachers and schools, but demand that the things Americans see as holding back a good education bad teachers, rigid rules, or bureaucratic inefficiency are eliminated. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. But it's also a reminder that voters understand solutions are complicated, and they don't always want to see major disruption as the answer. That's all for us today. Of course, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Amy E. Walter, and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. Roll the credits. Oh, wait, I have to do that. That's my cue. Okay. This show is made by a fearsome foursome of producers and sound designers, and I'm going to read their names now. Liddy Jean Cott is our associate producer. Vince Fairchild is our board operator and engineer. Jay Cowett is our director and theme music composer and our senior producer and fearless leader is Amber Hall. And The Takeaway's executive producer is the amazing Ellen Frankman. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. <laughs>